Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today we're going to talk about a topic that probably has been on the minds of a good number of you who are listening, given events that have happened over the course of the last few weeks. And it has to do with UFOs. Although apparently the government now refers to them as unidentified aerial phenomena. So UAP. I think UFO has more zip, unidentified flying object, but still. So there have been a number of episodes. The first one, the one that probably most people have heard about on February 4th, a Chinese spy balloon was shot down over the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, it was sort of clothed in mystery somewhat as to what was happening there and what it represented. Thought is now that it was intended to have surveillance over military bases in Guam and maybe Hawaii, but that it got carried off course and drifted to Alaska and Canada and then entered the United States, I think somewhere around Idaho on January 31st, surprising the Pentagon. And then on February 1st, it made its way to the skies over a military base in Montana, where it was publicly reported and that's when it came on our, I use radar screen a lot in conversation and it's rarely appropriate. And yet here it is for the first <laughs> time. <laughs> so then in addition to that, which we actually knew what it was, in February, there were three UAPs shot down. One was shot down off of Alaska and it broke into pieces, probably not a balloon, supposedly. A White House official said it was the size of a small car, which is rather impressive, Then the next day, February 11th, another one was shot down over Canada. It was downed over the Yukon, which borders Alaska. It was described by a Canadian official as being cylindrical and smaller than the Chinese spy balloon. And then the next day, February 12th, another UAP was shot down over Lake Huron. It was octagon-shaped and had strings hanging off of it. But it's unclear what any of these three things were. They're still really not a consensus over what they are. So the Chinese spy balloon is what started this whole phenomenon. And now, in a way, we and others are looking up at the skies and finding other things up there. Heck of a lot of things going on up there, Joanne. She said from Maine. (laughs) (laughs) The whole idea of the way that people living in the United States have looked at UFOs and interpreted UFOs really since even before there was the United States says a lot about who we are and a lot about our hopes and our fears. So I'm going to try to play this one absolutely straight because I think it's important to take cultural phenomena really seriously. I agree with your point, which is what we're talking about one way or another today is the fact that these various UFOs 
what's fascinating about them, or at least what fascinates me about them, is that they say a lot more about the people seeing them than about anything else. And so to get that, I think just like you said, Heather, you have to take it seriously because the people who see it and report it did. And that's the only way we can try to crawl into their head and try and understand what they thought they saw and what it might have meant and how it shows something about the time that they were in. So it's interesting about the modern moment on the heels of that Chinese spy balloon that we do have a pretty good sense of what was happening. And it told us a great deal about Chinese aspirations for control, not only of the Indo-Pacific, but also to sort of tweak the United States a little bit. So while that told us a lot of things, the objects that came afterward permitted politicians of one side or another to read into what might be in those skies and what it says about President Biden's ineffectuality. Oh, look, you know, these must be more spy balloons and he's not taking uh, enough proactive measures against China or, oh, no, we trust Biden. And, And the truth is, because they remain UAPs or UFOs, for all we know, they're like really fat birds. You know? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> okay. I can't play it straight if you're talking about fat birds. <laughs> the point is we don't really know what they are. And people are reading into them what they would like them to be, what they would like them to represent. Or what they think they represent. What The thing that gets me is if you're 20, 30 years from now looking back, what you're going to say is, well, these things were shot out of the sky and they were immediately made partisan. There was a huge, immediate polarized response. Oh, you know, we on this side think they're this and we on that side think they're that. So that if you're trying to get at the ethos of this moment, the fact that there are things floating around in the sky and they immediately become Republican versus Democrat tells you a lot about this moment. That idea of something on which we can project our hopes and our fears is really interesting when you think about our society. Things coming from outer space or coming from the air have given people that sort of mirror since the very beginning. So let's talk very briefly, at least, about the fact that, yes, they certainly wouldn't have seen them, what we now define as UFOs, but there were strange sightings of things going all the way back at least to the 17th century. But as we suggested at the outset, and I think as is going to become clear throughout this episode, people understood what they saw and what they wanted to see in the context of the time. So for example, Increase Mather, the great New England divine Increase Mather, um, wrote a book called An Essay for Recording of Illustrious Providences. And in there, he includes some things that he saw in the sky, you know, lights or whatever that were strange sights. But his take on that was it clearly has a religious or spiritual implication that in some way or another, it's a sign of something that this very religious minded people could read and understand if they were only looking. Certainly when the Mathers are doing their thing, there is a link between the fact that God is sending signs because God favors you, and perhaps God is sending signs because he's mad at you. So it's a it's a double-edged sword. Look, we're being noticed by God. We must be important. But oopsie poopsie, he's noticing us because we screwed something up. You managed to have an oopsie poopsie about Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they pay me the big bucks, Joanne. 
I just love the humanity of it. Because throughout this entire thing, it's not like we're going to say, oh, you know, in 1917, they really cared about UFOs. There's been this UFO strand throughout American history. And it says, this is what we hope and this is what we're afraid of. Exactly. And the fact that it is both of those things at the same time, in a way, is the most fundamental and even most profound way you can talk about humanity, the condition of being human, of all. It's a book that's full of, as he puts it, illustrious providences, different signs and things that he and others saw that have some kind of deeper meaning. He certainly wasn't saying there are people outside the earth who are beaming in to send us a message or something. He framed it in the context of nature and God communicating something or reflecting something or symbolizing something. The other piece of the early sightings that jumps out at me is if you look at John Winthrop, for example, he, of course, was the one of the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And these people are facing a continent that is alien to them with a lot of things that are really alien to them. Like, you know, one of the things that, that freaks out the early New England settlers are lobsters. They're basically giant cockroaches, and they're really <laughs> giant. I mean, they're like feet long, and they can, you know, really do damage to your leg and all that. There's all kinds of these phenomena that somehow they have to work into their worldview. So Winthrop took note of some of the things either that he saw or that others saw, and in great detail, I will offer one only because it's so striking. He describes how, for example, in this year, one John Everill, a sober, discreet man, and two others, saw a great light in the night at Muddy River. When it stood still, it flamed up and was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. It ran as swift as an arrow towards Charlton, and so up and down about two or three hours. What strikes me about that is it looked like an animal, and I think very much along the lines of what you just said, Heather, when you read about what confronted, as far as nature, these early settlers that came to North America, not only were there creatures they had never seen, there were vast numbers of them. And if you could have something as weird as, I'm sorry, I'm going to pick on lobsters again because we're in New England. If we were in Louisiana, I'd be picking on alligators. If you could have something as weird as that in this new kind of world, why couldn't you have something made of fire that runs into the sky? I mean, why couldn't that be an animal? And I think you're going to see that again throughout this episode as well, that when confronted with a new technology, people say, well, if we can do X, why can't we do Y? And it is also worth, I think, pointing out that Winthrop is really into this idea of there being sort of ghostly fire sort of figures in the air and what that might say. He's almost a marriage of the Puritan vision and the ecological vision. He reports on another sighting saying that a man resembled Captain Chaddock. Captain Chaddock had died in the vicinity and had professed a skill in necromancy and says of the sighting, sometimes they shot out flames and sometimes sparkles. About the same time, a voice was heard upon the water between Boston and Dorchester, calling out in a most dreadful manner, boy, boy, come away, come away. And it suddenly shifted from one place to another a great distance, about 20 times. 
people do speculate that what Winthrop and his peeps were really seeing was a very <laughs> common visual phenomenon <laughs> that appears over the marshland in the night when gas rising from organic matter that's decomposing begins to catch flame. I mean, there's all kinds of things that would actually cause flame in a marshland. There are actual reasons why he might have actually seen that. That's right. He might have seen something, but it, it was not... I'm going to go on a limb here and say it was not, in fact, some supernatural thing. Let's, I was going to say, let's beam ahead. There are a lot of words in the English language that sound like UFOs. But let's beam ahead into the 19th century and look at another moment when something, it stands out because thousands of Americans across the country thought that they saw a UFO. This is a, the period characterized by what were known as mystery airships that traveled over the United States. But what I love about this period is that think of the technological change going on. So you can speak over a telegraph now and a telephone if you're wealthy enough to have one, meaning that you can speak to your relatives a long way away who previously were lost to you after they moved two towns over, you know, maybe you'd exchange a letter or two in the rest of your lifetimes. But now you can literally pick up this thing and talk to them or communicate with them. So people start to wonder about, well, maybe you can communicate with dead people to get spiritualism, and maybe you can communicate with people from elsewhere. Now, at the same time, you have the rise of things like, and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, the Ferris wheel, which lets you get off the ground in a way that most people couldn't have gotten off the ground, certainly before 1873 and steel frame construction. But being able just to get in this wheel and go up into the air. Well, if you can go up into the air on a Ferris wheel, why couldn't people go up into the air in other ways as well? You know, it's worth thinking about the fact, because I totally agree with that, the sense of possibility, because of all of the technological change, made it possible for people to imagine any number of things being possible. And what it reminds me of, if you think about our current moment, and if tomorrow someone said, there's been a new form of technology created that can form an exact duplicate of your brain and funnel that into a program... We could believe that. It's not crazy because in our moment, there's computer technology, software technology that any given moment, something weird happens. What we do in this particular moment with software and computer technology and anything is possible, that's very much the kind of ethos and spirit that we're talking about when we get to the late 19th century, when why couldn't there be things flying? Why wouldn't there be things that we just don't know about, but they're very much in league with all of these other wild things? Throw in their railroads, steamships, all of these things in the 19th century that weren't imagined before. And what I love about this particular period is that if the increased Mather images were potentially frightening images, these are so hopeful. So people have begun in this period to imagine that everything is going to be done by air travel. And it's still just a dream. But between November 1896 and May of 1897, for a lot of Americans, it became something more than a dream. Now, the first reports came from Northern California in November of 1896. And the San Francisco Chronicle had a story that said that a number of Sacramento residents had seen a cigar-shaped dirigible and had heard human voices coming from 
within it. And there were various explanations. Someone stepped forward, a lawyer stepped forward, claimed to represent the man responsible for this airship. It was my client's airship that the people saw. Within weeks, there were reports of airships in 19 different California counties. The Fresno Republicans said that the whole phenomenon was just increasingly ubiquitous. And he actually went on to say the town which has not had its airship might as well come off the map. If it is alive, it doesn't know it. So everyone is having this sort of breathless encounter. Look what we're seeing. The San Francisco Examiner captured that mood with a 72-line iambic trimeter poem. I love when they create poetry in the 19th century about everything. That was some of the most fun I had in writing my last book. So the San Francisco Examiner, I offer you four bad lines of poetry. Oh, say, you airy phantom, far up, aloft, afloat, are you some nervous goblin who likes to steer a boat? <laughs> that sounds like Dr. Seuss, actually. How, how dare you say that's bad poetry? I think that's great. Oh, say, you airy phantom, far up aloft afloat, are, are you, you some, some nervous, nervous goblin, goblin who likes to steer a boat? A boat? <laughs> You know, you and I have threatened to write a musical in, in one of our other many promises, and I sort of feel like we could do as well as that. I'm sure we could. <laughs> and even recite it together, as we just did. It is worth pointing out here that experiments with air flight are not yet successful. While there were some successful balloon flights, Americans hadn't gotten very far off the ground. So while we're talking about the idea there are these dirigibles everywhere and everyone's seeing them, they don't actually exist yet. So people are seeing them everywhere. People are claiming to have built them. People are wondering who's up there chatting away. But these things don't actually exist. But there was absolute belief that they were there and people just didn't know about it. So, for example, the Trans-Mississippi Exposition, there was a claim that they were going to include one of these kinds of airships there so that people could actually see it. That did not happen, but the fact that people believed that that could happen is pretty remarkable. This is one of my favorite reactions to this. And in a way, you don't have to be a historian to figure this out. Lots of people in California are like, wow, look, I've seen it too. There's people up there talking, all this stuff's going on. How are people gonna react? At least some Americans are gonna say, Ooh, California. I know. <laughs> that, was, that was my thought about all of the material I was reading for this. It was like, wow, that sort of wacky California goes pretty far back. So in Portland, Oregon, which did not experience apparently the same phenomenon, it used the rumors from the San Francisco press to condemn all of California as an overly luxuriant and barbaric society. The fake flourishes through all the school of journals that imitate the New York world, which first used it as a constant and simple stock in trade. But it has reached its most luxuriant development in San Francisco, whose newspapers print little else. It is easy to understand from the history and social conditions of California why it should afford a soil peculiarly adapted to fake cultivation. California society unites, strangely enough, many of the human sentiments and susceptibilities of the barbaric state <laughs> with those of an overripe civilization. Sorry, California, if you're listening. But then 
California's barbarity spread east. In 16 Midwestern and Southern states, and different people are coming forward, claiming that they had these visions. It was seen in Texas. In the end, as we've suggested all along here, there wasn't any specific thing that people were necessarily seeing, but they could readily believe that they could see something because of everything else that was existing technologically around them that they couldn't imagine before. Certainly flight could be possible. Certainly you could be in the air. Certainly things that they had never imagined could be happening. And you can also understand how once some people, even if they were in the barbaric California, claimed to have seen this, how any other number of phenomena could have brought people to the same mindset that they too thought that they'd saw one of these airships. And you didn't want to be the one left behind. Right. If everybody else was seeing it and moving forward to this new vision, you weren't going to be the one left behind. I also like that in Dallas, the Dallas Morning News went the obvious place with this, saying that the crew had reported that they have been making an experimental trip to comply with a contract with certain capitalists of New York who are backing them. Robert Barron era, right? They are confident that they have achieved a great success and that in a short time, the navigation of the air will be an assured fact. They refused to have their machine critically inspected and refused to talk further as to their plans for the future. Again, sort of a, a way you look at the late 19th century as one of extraordinary possibility that's backed by robber barons' money that might move the country into this new, entirely new world, and other people being like, yeah, right, this is not a good use of Americans' imaginations because this ain't never going to happen. But now what that quote from the Dallas Morning News introduces that will continue to be a thread and actually will pull us a little bit further in time is sort of a vague idea of a conspiracy. There's something happening. They won't talk about it. They won't let anyone see it. And they're not going to talk about anything having to do with it until the future when they can reveal more. There's an aspect there of secret things happening that we don't know about. And at some point in the future, all will be revealed. A conspiracy and a conspiracy that covers a sort of fear. What might those capitalists be doing? What might those secret people be doing? And that's really going to come to the fore about 40 years later in what became known as the Battle of Los Angeles. So on February 23rd, 1942, a Japanese submarine off the coast of California shelled the Elwood oil field, which is near Santa Barbara, and it put everything on high alert in Southern California. About a day later, at 2 a.m., military radar picked up what seemed to be an enemy contact about 120 miles west of Los Angeles. Now, again, we're talking about 1942. So we are talking about the context of World War II. And again, think about that context as we're thinking about what people are thinking they're seeing and how they're responding to it. And just at the beginning of World War II, too, because if you've got Pearl Harbor on December... 7th of 1941. This is February. February. So it's three, not even three months later. So troops in Santa Monica unleashed 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition over the course of 90 minutes, lit up the sky over Los Angeles. There was a citywide blackout put into effect. Of course, people were sitting on roofs and watching what was going on. 
The LA Times rather breathlessly reported powerful searchlights from countless stations stabbed the sky with brilliant probing fingers, boy, purple prose, while anti-aircraft batteries dotted the heavens with beautiful, if sinister, orange bursts of shrapnel. Now, as the day wore on, there wasn't really hard evidence of enemy aircraft. The Secretary of the Navy said in a press conference that the whole thing was because of a false report of enemy aircraft. He said, as far as I know, the whole raid was a false alarm and could be attributed to jittery nerves. Now, again, think about the moment that we're in and Pearl Harbor has just happened. This will be a moment when people are worried about enemies coming from the skies, doing things that you're not expected for, surprises, violence. The idea of some kind of extraterrestrial invasion certainly is in line with those kinds of accidents and fears. Well, and the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, actually did issue a contradictory statement saying that there had, in fact, been 15 unidentified aircraft over L.A. The response to this indicated a lot about what unidentified flying objects meant for society. When the New York Times wondered aloud about the possibility that U.S. defense forces had been easily infiltrated, the Times said, is it possible that our whole system of supervision is so lax that a group of enemy aliens can casually take off from their own planes on nearby American airfields and fly over our cities at night? And a Republican representative from California Leland Ford made a a speech about how angry he was about the lack of information about the raid, even suggesting that the incident could have been military setup by the Eastern establishment to sabotage Southern California's economy. He said, this either was a practice raid or a raid to throw a scare into two million people or a mistaken identity raid or a raid to lay a political foundation to take away from Southern California's industries. Now, it's interesting because as we're talking about this and as we have government officials contradicting each other, and even in the statement you just read, Heather, well, it was either this or this or this or this, it's certainly going to make it harder for people to believe what the government is telling them. And Wendell Wilkie, the utilities magnate who had challenged President Franklin Delano Roosevelt for the presidency in 1940, he says, actually, point blank, conflicting statements from the heads of our armed forces tend to discount what they may say in the future. It was the same lack of coordination and confusion that brought the disaster at Pearl Harbor. Again, another aspect of this Maybe there's a conspiracy of some kind and there's a different reason for these. And what does it say about our government? Well, and then there's another layer that gets added over the top of this when in early March, the Hollywood journalist and screenwriter Frank Nugent, who actually went on to write the John Wayne Western, The Searchers, in 1956, put an essay in the New York Times in which he argued that It was Hollywood's culture of fantasy that had made people in Los Angeles particularly prone to imagining UFOs. And he went on to suggest that 
there were so many airports and so many aircraft factories around and so many other things having to do with the motion picture industry, like big red balloons that are anchored with cables as a warning for planes to steer clear of the shooting, lest their motors filter through the sound stages and ruin outdoor shots. You know, there's all sorts of things in the air around L.A., and that made them especially susceptible to imagining that there was something scary and dangerous up there. I never knew about those balloons. That surprised me when I was reading and preparing for this, that the studios flew balloons cable anchored to warn planes to steer clear so that they didn't interrupt what they were recording in the studios. I don't know, that, that somehow or other struck me as practical and logical and weird. So there is, of course, fallout from this particular UFO incident in that there's a wave of anti-Japanese sentiment on its heels in Los Angeles. Authorities arrested 20 Japanese Americans, accused them of being involved with coordinating the raid. And it became a factor in the vigorous enforcement of the executive order for Japanese internment, which President Roosevelt had signed just days before the raid. And yet in 1983, the Office of Air Force History suggested that the supposed enemy craft in the air over L.A. in 1942 were likely meteorological balloons that had just been released to try and help to determine the wind conditions there. So people saw in the air some kind of balloons, and in this fraught moment, they became enemy aircraft, huge barrage to bring them down. They certainly at least had some kind of an impact on actual views about legislation, which is a, the other half of what we're saying here, is that, as you pointed out, Heather, it's important to remember the humanity of this, the humanness of this. The other side of that is this isn't just sort of frilly stuff happening and having no impact. It potentially could have a serious impact. <laughs> Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For more Cafe History content, check out Time Machine, a weekly column by our editorial producer, David Kurlander, inspired by each Now and Then episode. You can receive the Time Machine articles through the free Cafe Brief email. Sign up at cafe.com slash brief. Now, 
One thing which we haven't mentioned yet, and it almost is hard to imagine discussing this topic without mentioning it, is the 1938 drama that unfolded around Orson Welles' radio program of The War of the Worlds that was part of the Mercury Theater on the Air radio show. So Wells and his cohort took a 40-year-old novel and they changed it into something that supposedly sounded real, that included news bulletins and any number of other things that made it sound as though what was unfolding was real news announcements about an attack of aliens in New Jersey. The original novel, I think, picked Great Britain, but now it's New Jersey. And that some listeners mistook the bulletins for the real thing and began making phone calls. It had a huge impact in a way that Wells and the people working with him really hadn't intended. Now, supposedly, one of the reasons why it had the impact that it did is there was a statement that this was fiction at the very beginning. But if you tuned in late, normally at the half hour mark, there would be a break in a radio show for some kind of advertisement. This did not stop at the half hour mark. The break in the show was much later. So if you beamed in a little late to listening to this, this newscaster saying, oh no, they're getting off their spacecraft in New Jersey. There's laser beams. There's, you know, gas coming from the skies. In fairness, I think he was a little more convincing. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, he was. I'm sorry, I'm getting way worked up at the idea um, of this. But it sounded convincing. As a matter of fact, they very much tried to get actors who could sound either like radio broadcasters or political figures. I think they had the supposed Secretary of the Interior make a report on what was happening. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation... I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. Now, in this moment, right? You had recently had the Depression. You did have a gathering crisis in Europe. There was the Hindenburg disaster. There were any number of things that would have made Americans rather jittery. And already the idea of magical, weird, mysterious spacecraft was part of the national culture. So for all of these reasons, the War of the Worlds had a huge impact. And actually, one of the things that happened is, you know, people panicked. Uh, there are reports of suicides over this announcement. It's so interesting because it's a work of fiction, and yet it is also in some ways a precursor to ideas of disinformation. It sounded like a true news broadcast. Deliberately. 
deliberately it was believable enough, even though we look at it now and say, oh, it's a pop culture hoax. And it tapped into this idea of I'm really important and I'm under threat. And that's one of the aspects of UFOs that has been a constant for people living in this country. Ironically enough, for, for something that's this big, you know, spatial phenomenon, people respond to it in a very personal way. This is about me in some way, about us. It's coming to us. There's a personal kind of a link with this so that it isn't just something up in the skies. Actually, we see that from the very first instances that we discussed, right? A providence, what's happening is a providence. In some way or another, what we're seeing reflects something about us and who we are and maybe indeed suggests that we are important enough to be noticed. And then, of course, by the 1960s, we've got another wave of new technology that is going to focus people on space, you know, through things like the Apollo program and also through the rise of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, which was an attempt to take the themes of the American West into a space Western. There are things that happened in the 60s that show that whatever people are thinking about UFOs, some of them are thinking along the lines of War of the Worlds, it might not be so wonderful. What are the UFOs? Who are they? Maybe this represents some kind of dramatic, massive danger. And a very specific example of this, and I remembered this, but I couldn't put details to it. I actually looked it up for this, was a Twilight Zone episode from 1962 titled <sighs> To Serve Man. Oh, oh, man. Exactly. That's what, that's what I did. So this is the opening to the episode. Respectfully submitted for your perusal, a canimet. Height a little over nine feet. Weight in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale. For in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands figuratively with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is The Twilight Zone. It's an episode that very much captures the idea of danger, in the skies. Like, yeah, they're coming for us, but why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and they're coming for us under terms that look really good. But, and that danger is going to run through so many of the attempts to talk about what outer space might be like from then until the present. Except there is a cultural moment in the 1970s when the assumption is that in one way or another, it's Earth that's the problem. And it's the UFOs who represent some kind of advanced way of seeing things. And we're talking about things like close encounters of the third kind. In November of 1977, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg's movie, comes out in American theaters. It ended up being nominated for nine Academy Awards. It won one for cinematography. It starred Richard Dreyfus as an Indiana electrician named Roy Neary, who experiences several close encounters with UFOs, and he's convinced he's seeing something. He doesn't know what it is. He's obsessed with it. He's drawing pictures of it. He never stops talking about what he sees. He alienates his wife, Ronnie, who's played by Terry Garr, and ultimately goes on this obsessive quest to view this spacecraft that he's sure is somewhere that he's thinking about, and he just has to sort of figure out where it is. Once again, he's chosen 
you know, what that means, it's not clear, but he's chosen and nobody else understands it. And can I just throw out here what a brilliant actor Terry Gar is? Yes. <laughs> she ever, have you ever seen her be bad in anything? No. But again, the idea that this is no longer something that everybody knows, this is unique to him. He has the inside track. Rather like, you know, Increase Mather got the inside track for the Puritans, and rather like the idea that it shows you are somehow special, but maybe that's not such a good thing. Well, he ultimately does find his way to where this spacecraft is supposed to be. There's a mountain range, Devil's Tower Monument in Wyoming, and he makes a pilgrimage there. What he finds is that, as you just said, Heather, yeah, he's chosen, but there are a number of other people who clearly have been chosen as well. And he meets up with one of them and they become partners in their search for exactly what's going on. So Richard Dreyfuss's partner in that search is played by actress Melinda Dillon, who actually passed away just a few weeks ago and was acclaimed for her part in this movie as well. Now, what fascinates me is that when this movie was initially conceived by Steven Spielberg, what he was going to focus on was a Watergate-like conspiracy hiding the UFO. It becomes something that's kind of spiritual and even religious. It starts out being absolutely of the moment. It's going to echo political corruption and conspiracy theories. And it's not until he starts talking about it with others that it evolves into the shape it ultimately takes. And yet there's an element in that that continues to be that sort of conspiracy-minded thing. They have to work around the government agents who are trying to keep this visit a secret and, again, be chosen themselves by the people landing on Devil's Tower. So in the creation of the movie, Spielberg brought on, I have to mention this because it's a fellow professor, Professor J. Allen Hynek as a consultant, and apparently Hynek had worked with the Air Force on UFO research in the 1950s, and he had pioneered the Close Encounter classification system in a book that he wrote in 1972 titled The UFO Experience. And by his system, a close encounter of the first kind meant UFOs seen at a close enough range to be able to make out some details. A close encounter of the second kind had a physical effect, so like scorching trees or scaring animals. A close encounter of the third kind meant that witnesses reported seeing extraterrestrials in or near a UFO. So what we're looking at is a close encounter of the third kind in this movie. Now, Heineck argued that Spielberg's movie captured the growing focus on UFOs, really that was taking place in American society at large. He said, even though the film is fiction, it's based for the most part on the known facts of the UFO mystery, and it certainly captures the flavor of the phenomenon. It did, in the end, have more of a religious or spiritual flavor than Watergate, although, as you just said, Heather, that's certainly in there. But, you know, there end up being notes, musical notes that end up being played, their form of communication. Those are the five notes, <laughs> which have been in my head for like two Since days. Since 1977. Probably. Do, 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 do. 
Ray Bradbury, who was the writer of Fahrenheit 451 and the Martian Chronicles, loved Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He wrote a review in the LA Times in which he said the film made an, a global statement. He called it the most important film of our time, for this is a religious film in all the great good senses, the right senses of that much battered word. Spielberg has made a film that can open in New Delhi, Tokyo, Berlin, Moscow, Johannesburg, Paris, London, New York, and Rio de Janeiro on the same day to mobs and throngs and crowds that will never stop coming because for the first time someone has treated all of us as if we really did belong to one race. So in this period in the 1970s, a period that many people, I think, today tend to forget was extraordinarily optimistic. We seem to focus more on the oil crisis in the United States, for example, and some of the, the fallout from that and the hostage crisis. And yet, there was also this sense that if we did it right, we could all work together and all regain the kind of innocence and love for each other that perhaps people who were guarding Devil's Tower, the government agents, had lost sight of. And Bradbury certainly seemed to buy into it. Now, not everybody did. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., a historian, said, how can we be so sure that a civilization sufficiently in advance of our own would regard us with any more consideration than white intruders from Europe regarded the Indians of the American continent, the blacks of Africa, or the primitive peoples of the South Pacific. So he went on to say, let us pray that the future dreamed of in this humane, attractive, brilliant movie turns out to be right, to serve man, if you will. Now, there Schlesinger is mentioning how white intruders encountered blacks of Africa there's a strain of UFO culture that is distinct and different from some of what else is happening here. And it has to do with Black Americans and their views of UFOs. And I find this absolutely fascinating. So at this period, increasingly, and I'm talking now about the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, there are often white tales of UFOs being scary and dangerous and we don't know what they want. Black accounts of UFOs almost universally talk about UFOs as being friendly and imagine a world that is different from the world that they're in. If the world that they were in, if the United States particularly, is seen as anti-Black, many Black people looked out into the heavens and saw other peoples and a way to reimagine who they were, a, a way to have something different, to have superior people come down to Earth. And again, as we said before, sort of choose these people and take these people in and allow them to expose and experience their power in a world that is so structurally anti-Black. You have a number of Black musicians in this period who engage in, incorporate into their work, and even say that they've had personal encounters with UFOs. You have George Clinton and Bootsy Collins, who claim that they saw UFOs, incorporate that into their music. You have Black jazz composer and musician, and also someone who did a lot of experimental music, Sun Ra, who claims that he was taken on a trip somewhere by a UFO. And in his 
theology. He said that black people were part of an angel race, a kind of cosmic race. And again, pulling the black experience out of Earth and the United States, rising above slavery, rising above systemic racism, and experiencing and imagining something different. Is it fair to say that there, too, as people are experimenting with their spirituality and with psychedelic drugs in the 1970s, this idea of escaping to another world of freedom and beauty and power finds its way into Black music, into Afrofuturism, and into this idea of there being, once again, we're chosen, but in this case, there's not a downside. We're chosen and we're going to escape to something better. But I love the idea of Parliament and the galaxy that they create with, you know, the Funkapus and Dr. Funkenstein are, I hate to do this to you, but in so many ways, reminiscent of Increase Mather. Wow. <laughs> well, but, but really, if you're looking at that idea that you've got new technologies that prove yes. you're chosen right. and that there is another world out there for you. A higher meaning. A, and a higher meaning, that thread runs through American history. And there's no reason that the Afronauts and Increase Mather aren't really drawing from that same combination of being the chosen, confronting new technologies and a new landscape, and fears of what might be embedded in that at the same time. Funk upon a time. In the days of the Funkopus, the concept of specially designed Afronauts capable of Funkatizing galaxies was first laid on man-child, but was later repossessed and placed among the secrets of the pyramids until a more positive attitude towards this most sacred phenomenon, clone funk, could be acquired. There in these terrestrial projects, it would wait along with its co-inhabitants of kings and pharaohs, like sleeping beauties, for the kiss that would release them to multiply in the image of the chosen one, Dr. Funkenstein. And funk is its own reward. May I frighten you? So really, in a way, what we're talking about again and again, and it's the balance that shifts... In the current moment, UFOs reflecting real fears, and some of these are very earthly, grounded, foreign relation fears. And as we said at the beginning, also, real hopes that there's a lot of emotion and a lot of intention invested in what we think about UFOs at any given moment. And that, as we've seen throughout this episode, it permeates into popular culture. It potentially has an impact on politics. It infuses itself with religion. It has an impact on conceptions of race. That in one way or another, the idea of aliens from someplace else beaming down here and for better or worse, choosing us has a real power to it that certainly helps explain some of the reasons why this is such a pervasive thread throughout American history. In a way, you know, it makes me want to 
link it a little bit in an American context to American exceptionalism. The idea that, you know, as a nation somehow we're special, we're better than the rest of the world. And in some ways, UFOs, people who are looking at UFOs, the positive spin on that can be a version of that, which is somehow we're chosen. Like good old Increase Mather, who has been mentioned more in this episode than I would have expected. If anybody had said an episode about UFOs would feature Increase Mather, I suspect that it would have surprised a lot of people. <laughs> but that, true. I think you're exactly right. That idea that people in this country are chosen by some extraterrestrial, superior, extraterrestrial, superior beings of some sort. And that's both a sign of exceptionalism and the potential for disaster has been a thread running through our history from the start. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. 